This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you have a question or you have a need and you go looking for the answer, having the awareness that this is your journey and you can take a pause and ask yourself how you're feeling, how the information is making you feel, whether you got the perspective that you were looking for. Oftentimes, our experience with information online can feel like we're just consuming whatever is out there and and we go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it's really critical for us to maintain that awareness of what we were looking for and own that journey. I'm Nidhi Habar and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Nidhi Habar, a product manager at Google, who's focused on tackling misinformation and promoting media literacy. This is a a topic that I'm pretty passionate about because I think so many of the problems of our world kind of are rooted in this, uh, no matter what the issue is, right? Whatever issue of the day, it's all about kind of how we interpret it. But but back to Nidhi, in her role, she builds products that help improve information literacy by empowering people to evaluate information for themselves. Like me, Nidhi is a Southern native, although she's from Florida, but she's of Indian heritage. And as a young girl, she was really just kind of struck with how education kind of changes how people experience the world, that and how cool library scanners are. (laughs) But Nidhi's kind of worked across like ed tech, technology. She's like served learners all over the world, Stockholm, Singapore, India, Kenya. She even co-founded like an education nonprofit to teach public speaking. And now she finds herself at Google. So as a technology policy fellow at the Aspen Institute, she co-founded the EdTech Equity Project to address racial bias in education technologies using AI in schools by bringing school students and industry together. And at Google, again, she's a product manager, but she's focused on misinformation. And the tools, Google, this one like trusted tool that we use, is trying to help us guide ourselves to better information literacy and avoiding misinformation and really starting to think critically about how we search and what we find. Um, I don't know. I'm a bit of a nerd for this sort of stuff, Sharon, but I think we had fun with this conversation. Uh, what about you? We did. We did. And when you said that you were passionate about these types of topics, I giggled to myself because that's an understatement. You are beyond passionate. I don't even know what the word would be, but you are you are actually quite a cynic, I think, when it comes to <laughs> social media platforms, any kind of any kind of communication platform that collects data. You question my own decisions sometimes with how we decide to promote and market this podcast. And 
I really enjoy talking to Nitty because I think it proves that there are good guys on the inside, right? And I not only enjoy getting to know her because as a person, she's just phenomenal. And I feel like she's someone that I would definitely grab a drink with and totally hang out with, but she's really thoughtful about how Google and just other platforms are distributing information. She gave us some really great tips about how we as searchers could be interacting with these platforms more. And we got into this too. I think as a, as a parent myself, I'm I'm also starting to become more aware. So I haven't gotten to your realm of things yet, Roman, but I have started to definitely question how how platforms are leveraging all of the information that they're getting from us and using that to then pepper our minds with new ideas, especially when it comes to my kids, because as they're using YouTube, they're on like TikTok now sometimes. I find it to be a little bit scary because I know how I get drawn in, you know, into these rabbit holes. And then to think that my eight-year-old, my 10-year-old can be scrolling through and 10 minutes later end up on maybe a piece of content that I don't think that he's mature enough yet for, those types of things I feel are a little cloak and dagger and and quite scary. And so talking to her humanized a lot of that for me, but also I really just love how how she's approaching it, knowing that those are the concerns, but also being able to provide solutions to that and to do it in such a passionate way. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. And it's not just our kids, right? It's our parents or brothers or sisters or uncles or aunts, ourselves, Yeah, you know, even as we get older and as we get older, I'll just leave it at that. And it's, right. I think we all really need to be thinking about information literacy. And it's just great to hear the how and the why of kind of what motivates Nidhi. So um, this is really important at this moment with things going on in public health, the the election cycle coming up, the divisiveness that we face in our culture as we speak. So um, thinking and learning more about information literacy, we'll put some links in the show notes as well to some of her work and some other sources. But uh, we think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with our new friend Nidhi. Nithi, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Roman. Yeah. So I guess the first question we really want to know about you is, where are you from? I was born in Columbus, Ohio, but raised and grew up entirely in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> okay. Did you have like a Disney pass? <laughs> I did. I was very fortunate to have one of those. I was always jealous of any family living in Orlando full-time. Like, I just wanted to be you. <laughs> I haven't been to Disney for a while. And like, I have two little kids. But, you know, I haven't gotten the chance to go for years. Uh, and I'm really tired of all my friends with older kids who have been on the Millennium Falcon significantly more times than me. And uh, yeah, it just uh, it hurts right now. And I need to go. I guess I need to take my kids, but I don't know what to do. You know what? You just got to do it. You got to do it. I guess. I gotcha. Nitty, do you ever get asked, where are you really from? <laughs> all the time. I definitely have had all the iterations of that question as people have become better at trying to ask it in different ways. <laughs> but normally when I get when I get asked that, you know, both both my parents immigrated to the United States from South India in the 80s. So they're from different parts of India, but but both from South India. What parts? Um from Hyderabad and then from from Secunderabad actually. So close by. 
did you like my folks? Well, okay. So actually both my parents are Indian, but my mom grew up in Africa and England, but anyway, so I didn't make as many trips back to any of the motherlands as a kid, especially India. I probably made more trips back as an adult, but as a kid, did you go back a lot of times uh, when you were younger? Yeah. So my grandparents all live in India still and many aunts and uncles. So we would go back pretty often and, and spend summers in India. Um, so I was really fortunate to to experience what their family life was like when they were growing up. So what was that like? I, I mean, as a kid from Orlando, kind of going, you know, spending the summers there, not being at Disney during the summer when all your friends were there. I, I, I don't know. What was that like growing up? Kind of what were some of those experiences you had going back and forth between the two cultures? I think I didn't realize really the privilege of that experience until I was much older. You know, as a kid, when you have those types of experiences, you you just think that that's normal. So for for many trips, I think it just felt like this is kind of where we go. This is my grandparents' house. This is what we do in the summers. And only as I got older did I start to realize how formative that was for um, my view of the world and and how I understand perspectives of different people living in different countries. I think as a child, I was probably most struck by realizations around how different your life can be. You know, as a kid, when you go to India and you see other children who look like you, but have a very, very different life. Yeah, it's like a parallel universe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I I think I, I didn't have words to verbalize that as a child, but as an adult now, I can see how that formed so many of my conceptions around how important and, and critical education is and, you know, things that can just really change the course of your life. You know, um, we recently, Sharon and I, we, we did a rewatch of the namesake for the pod. And like a lot of us, you know, we've seen the film or even read the book and it was kind of a big thing for us. And, and you know, as you know, in the film and probably for so many of our parents, it was like the split second decision or at least a decision that was, made and could have gone a different ways. Like, you know, I think my my dad was riding a bus wow. and he was on his way to either the British or the American embassy, but he decided on a whim, maybe he'd go to the Canadian embassy instead. And that decision, you know, had that been on a different bus or something, had something happened differently? Wow. Just like, you know, the universe would have been different. So I guess, what was that like for you? You know, bridging those cultures growing up in Florida, was there, was there a big South Asian community where you were? Not at all. I mean, I think you can probably imagine what that what that was like. But I grew up in in Florida where there were not only, you know, not very many Indians, but people tended to look a very specific way. The big public schools that I went to were pretty predominantly white or black, but not so much in between. Very few Indian students. And in fact, I remember a little girl in third grade asking me, so what are you, black or white? And I was truly as stumped as she was. I didn't, I didn't even know that there was a word brown until I went to college. Nidhi, did you ever feel like you had to do anything to fit in then or to conform in any way? I did. I, I think I learned pretty early on that I was different. And to make things a little worse, I had just to paint a little picture. I had frizzy hair, glasses, at some point braces, a unibrow. So <laughs> it wasn't easy to be to be different. All of which are back in right now. Yeah, exactly. You would have been trending now. (laughs) 
Yeah, especially the eyebrow look. I think that could have done me some favors. <laughs> but I, I, I think I, to answer your question, Sharon, I think I mostly succeeded on things that would make me seem normal. So I would brush my hair for hours in hopes that it would become silky smooth, like my my girlfriend's hair and gush over Teen Vogue magazines, hoping that to find like a beauty clue that would make me feel more normal, things like that. Yeah, we've all been there. I mean, I remember being in middle school and buying highlighter, kind of like it was called Sun In at the time. And it's bleach that you add to your hair. And I have Asian black hair, so that was never going to turn my hair blonde <laughs> in any way. And I would go to CVS and just buy these bottles and spray it into my hair and hope that it would lighten up. And I think it it would a little bit, but I had to I would watch the commercials and I would watch all of my friends and think that my hair would change into a pale blonde shade the way that their hair had. And I couldn't figure out like why mine didn't also do that. And just to kind of reflect on that, I think it's so interesting, especially to think that when it comes to appearances as a young girl in middle school, when you're about 11 or 12, that's that matters so much. And the way my, the way my hair looked, the way my clothes looked, the way that I appeared was a really big part of what I felt like I had to adjust to fit in. Yeah. So I can definitely relate to that. One thing I'm curious about is what you wanted to be when you were growing up. I, as a kid, was enamored with libraries. I dreamed of being a librarian and having a little scanner tool to scan books at the desk that the librarian had. (laughs) That was my, my dream. I remember my dad once brought home one of those like little laser pointers for my sister and I, and I spent hours scanning the barcodes of those books with there's a pointer <laughs> pretending like we were helping each other check out the books that we had rented. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought at first you were saying that you were taking like a laser pointer, but we're talking about a laser scanner. That's legit. What did your dad do? Like how did he get his hands on one of those and bring it <laughs> No, home? no, you were you were right, Roman. He he it was a laser pointer. We just used it to pretend it was a barcode scanner. You pretend it was a UPC. Your dad totally stole that from the library. He totally lifted <laughs> it. I felt that way about grocery stores. Like the checkout scanners. I just loved them. <laughs> and I loved watching the cashier. Which is why you're in marketing, Sharon, and Nithi went into information literacy and it's gonna save the world. And okay, yeah, that's also why I still do to this day. <laughs> I'll go to the self-checkout scanner whenever I can, just so I can still scan my groceries. Oh, man, I am such a pro at the self-checkout. But honestly, it's all the idiots in front of me who who are not pros. You know, that's honestly why I can't do self-checkout unless it's like a clear (laughs) line in front of me. And sometimes I just jump in and help them. But that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) Nitty, what did mom and dad want you to be when you're growing up? You know... I feel really fortunate because I have Indian parents who are very much Indian parents. So although they weren't specific about needing to be a doctor, an engineer, or a lawyer, uh, math and science was definitely at the top of their list. I had a few more options. My mom was a scientist, so I was allowed to be interested in biology, chemistry, the broad sciences. But I feel very fortunate that I think as I learned about the world, my parents really did. Too. Like I, I remember their horror. I once did investment banking and I, I quit that job less than a year in to work at an education startup for half the pay. 
And, you know, they had this, the standard kind of immigrant reaction around fear of like, what's going to happen? Will you struggle all your life? So they definitely growing up really wanted me to be, take a job that would be secure and stable um, over the course of my life. How did that lead into, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of jumping around. You know, I really want to talk about kind of where you are today and the work you're doing, but without getting too LinkedIn-y on it um, and kind of jumping on a roll, you know, you went from investment banker to education startup to Google. Like, what's the what's the mentality of, of kind of the shifting? What's driving that curiosity to kind of keep making these career pivots along the way? I've always been really passionate about and motivated by the the power of education. Uh, I think that's kind of been the central thread for me around really understanding how how much education has the power to change your life. And I've also just on a personal level really loved the experience of seeing people learn. Um, so growing up, I spent a lot of time volunteering in schools. And in, in college, I co-founded a nonprofit that taught debate and public speaking to students in, in Washington Heights. And I think, you know, a lot of I like to think that some of these other choices, like being an investment banker for a little bit, were just blips that kind of brought me back to the course of where I felt really good about the work that I was doing. But ultimately, I I fell into the tech world in pursuit of working at a, a small education startup that was working on things I really believed in. And what brought me to Google really was the understanding and the realization that when we think about education today, Information literacy is one of the most critical skills that people can possibly learn. It's it's so important for people to be able to evaluate and think critically about the information coming at them from so many different directions. And when we think about the way that people access information today, very often through Google search, it's it's one of the best places it could be to be thinking about this challenging and really important problem space. How's that changed? Because it was like, you know, without stating the obvious, I, I feel like being information literate was easier when, you know, there was less of a choice or there was more consensus and trust with kind of our sources of information versus now we kind of have this embarrassment of riches. You know, it's anything you want, it's there at your fingertips immediately. Like, that's not what we have today. Like, when as someone who's been in the space, did you start to feel or see that change in things? Yeah, absolutely. I that the way that you described it, Roman, really resonates. I think, you know, today I I don't know about your kids, but it's a shame that kids don't have the same relationship that people used to have to their local libraries as they did before. You know, they don't go to libraries with questions that they have. And and so now today with information widely available on the internet, on social platforms, shared in messaging apps. To your point, it's kind of, you know, anything you want to know from whomever is available to you in, in a couple of clicks. And that's really amazing in, in many ways. You know, democratizing access to information is also a core value of Google's. But the kids and people in general now have a very different experience when they want to get to the bottom of questions they have. And so I think there's there's fundamentally two two sides of this and be happy to share kind of how we're thinking about this work at Google as well. But there's information quality and in making sure that you're getting access to the highest quality information and information from, from people and perspectives that you can trust. And then there's the tools that you need to be able to evaluate that information for yourself. And, and it's hard work to do that. It's, it's hard work to know when you need to do it and, and then to know how to. 
Yeah, I think a little bit about like the how beyond, you know, just beyond verifying sources and stuff. I almost think of it kind of like, you know, the dog from the movie Up, you know, it's like squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) And there's like so many rabbit holes with information. Like, you know, like I'll give you an example. I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn because, you know, my job, you're looking for one thing, but then you just wind up going down rabbit holes. And then the same thing happens, you know, I see on YouTube, I think it's something I really have to manage, not just with myself, but with my daughter, uh, you know, she's like six and a half. And because again, rabbit holes, you're three clicks away from something that takes you in a very different direction. How do you mean, I, uh, look, I want to talk about literacy, but it's almost like before you get there, you almost have to have like, this, like self-discipline of looking at information and knowing what you're going to look for. And look, I'm a fully realized adult. And sometimes I find myself behaving like a six and a half year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. That visual of the dog from up. <laughs> you know, totally, totally. I've, I've been there many times. And I think that the information environment too is designed to kind of do that, right? We live in a, in an attention economy. And one of the things that I think is so critical that information literacy experts talk about is that pause that you mentioned, that the, the discipline, but really just the ability or the awareness to know when you, you have enough information and when, it, when it's okay for you to stop. There used to be kind of a paradigm of I'm looking for this information, I go looking for it, and I got the answer to my question. We don't live in that world anymore. And so it takes you know, so much more awareness to be able to step back and and pause and and think about not just do I have enough information, but also how did the information I just got make me feel? I think this is one of those skills that we we need to build as a society that's so critical to information literacy. For me, this question comes down to agency around really knowing that you are in the driver's seat of the information journeys that you're on when you have a question or you have a need and you go looking for the answer or you go looking for an exploration, having the awareness that this is this is your journey and you can kind of take a pause and, and ask yourself how, how you're feeling, how the information is making you feel, whether you got the perspective that you were looking for. I think oftentimes our experience with information online can feel like we're just consuming whatever is out there. And, and we go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And mm-hmm. it's really critical for us to maintain that awareness of what we were looking for and 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 own that journey. I would imagine how people have to think about this and learn about this is different. Like us who, you know, kind of grew up in the before times, but who have developed arguably, and I say us as like all of society, really terrible habits, right? Versus people who are coming into like, you know, my daughter is learning how to read. My daughter knows that her parents can access anything on their phone. And she asks me to look up things. My daughter Mm -hmm. knows to ask Google things, right? Like about songs and facts and stuff. But what do you think is like the difference in muscle development between like little kids because a lot of our listeners are kind of in that stage where we've got little ones who are coming into the world. Sharon's got two little boys who have been reading longer than my daughter has. Yeah. And who I was trying to explain to them what an encyclopedia was the other day. And they literally said, mom, why didn't you just ask Google? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, wait, wow, I've got to back up and actually explain to them that none of this existed, which is why we had those books at home, you know, to to, to give us information. So no, I, I I bought my daughter uh, 
a dictionary at a yard sale the other day and she just didn't know what to do with it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> These are all the things, right? I mean, it's such a different information landscape than, than when we were growing up. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. Oh yeah, HHS has still got it. Have they got a cure for, for my holiday shopping blues? Sure. I mean, if you count preventing COVID as the cure for the holiday blues. Well, I guess it is that time again to encourage everyone to get their COVID vaccine. Oh yeah, vaccines. <laughs> you know, getting my vaccine card updates is like getting my subway card punched. If only it came with a free sandwich. I think it did for a while, uh, at least free donuts. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Sharon, getting your latest updated COVID vaccine is even better with the holidays upon us, especially if it means getting more time to safely catch up with your family. Ah, uh, yes. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron, which means we all have more time to enjoy that home cooking and mom dishes that we've all been craving. Yeah, these latest vaccines are here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. Boom, just did it. Uh, did what? Find the perfect holiday gift for all your family, friends, and favorite <laughs> podcast co-hosts? No, even better, I just scheduled my free vaccine today. Oh, snap. That was pretty easy. Damn straight. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone over the age of five at vaccines.gov. Just be sure to bring candy for everyone five and up. I'm a big fan of candy, for sure. Um, and our kids do like a good candy taster to, to go with all of their vaccines. Psh, kids, anyone five and up deserves a post-vaccine candy treat, <laughs> uh, present company included. It is the holiday season, after all. Fair enough. COVID is serious stuff, and we want to make sure all of you are ridiculously thoughtful, stylish, hip, and favorite podcast listeners are getting the latest and greatest COVID vaccines. Especially with those amazing holiday sweaters. <laughs> That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Let's all do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities this holiday season. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find the latest vaccines near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. But now back to our show. You know, one of the things, this is one of the things that really inspires me to do this work. We we just did this survey uh, with the Pointer Institute and YouGov Inc. And as someone who's who's very logical, you know, having stats to back these things up in terms of what we see is really helpful. And what we've learned is that Gen Z and, and millennials really care about sharing accurate information, more so than than older generations. And I think that that felt really encouraging to me as we think about, you know, your children being the next generation of leaders who are growing up digitally savvy and looking to tech, like Sharon, your, your point about your sons, they're looking to tech for solutions to their questions because that's kind of the world that they know. Mm -hmm. And and really thinking about what do we want that the information-seeking journeys for them to look like and what tools do we want to be available for them to make it normal and and natural for them to question and, and evaluate the information that they're looking at. How do you guys think about that at, at Google with products that you build? Like what are the kind of UXs? You know, so much of digital is about removing friction, about making it easier. Is it about cr now like unnaturally creating friction to create those moments of like, how does that manifest itself from a product standpoint? Yeah, the friction point with respect to the conversation we're having around pause is really interesting 
you know, the way that we think about it at, at Google is we know that misinformation is one of the greatest challenges that we face as a society. It's it's scary to think about when we think about the, the next generation, folks, your, your children's age. And we really believe that because people are coming to Google search, Google search is part of that solution. Also because information quality is what sets us apart. So fundamentally, our approach has two different elements. One is information quality, which is that we really invest in ranking systems that are fundamentally designed to surface reliable and relevant information. And then the second piece, which is where my team focuses, is information literacy. So with this effort, our goal is to give people the context and the tools that they need to make informed decisions about what to trust. And and sometimes that can kind of feel like friction, which is what makes this such a hard problem, is how do we build that type of context and tools into the experience such that it doesn't feel like friction? It just feels like a helpful, a helpful tool that's available to you. So the pauses are invisible. You don't know they're really happening. But. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, one example is something called content advisories that Google released earlier this year. And it's the notion that, do you know what it actually, do you know what a data void is? No. I think, but I'm going to pretend I don't. So yes. You can explain it to <laughs> Educate <me>. us, experts. <laughs> so data voids are a term that sounds kind of scary, but they're a term that's used in the research space on information literacy. And it's something that we know poses a challenge to search engines. So it could happen for a multitude of reasons. For example, there might not be a lot of information out there on a particular topic. Um, and this can sometimes be manipulated by, by bad actors as a vector for abuse because content written on this topic has a really good chance of them showing up at the top of your results. So it's really important that we, to us, that we help users navigate this information when they find themselves in these situations. So one thing that we've launched is a content advisory on, for example, breaking news topics. So when a story has just broken out, we let you know that there may it may take time for reliable information to appear. And so you'll see a little box at the top of your search results. It doesn't mean that you can't scroll past that and read the results below that. It doesn't mean that the results below it are low quality. It just means that you're in an information space where it might help to take a pause and, and think a little more critically about the information that you're consuming. So it's, it's things like that where Google can help make you aware of the need to pause or the need to think critically, but it's really up to you to do that work and and to evaluate things for yourself. So, I mean, beyond uh, Data Void also being an awesome band name idea, which I need to like go by the <laughs> name for, um, what, would be, what would be an example, like a current example of something that you guys are seeing Data Voids in? I think we see these often in things like new health information is a great example or or a natural disaster sometimes yeah. when a, a, yeah. a current event happens and it's or shooting you know there's sensitive events where people are coming to search quickly for information as fast as possible and it's so important to let people know that they might be in a, a really sensitive emotional state that there isn't a ton of reliable information available yet. And so, you know, news organizations haven't yet written about these things. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't go and look for information and try to make sense of what's out there at that time, but just that they should know it might take time for definitive, reliable information to appear. I think that's really, one, I I wasn't even aware of that. So now I'm going to be much more vigilant about 
looking out for it or, or reading any kind of disclaimers that come up. But secondly, as you were talking, something that kind of poked into my head was um, I really love Google Trends as a tool, mainly because I'm a marketer and I'm a data nerd and I teach digital marketing classes and things like that. But it is really fascinating when you realize the power of both positive information, but misinformation, right? Or, or rather the impact that all of this information can have. Because when you go to a tool like Google Trends, you can see how these news events or health information or just anything, right? Game of Thrones releases a new series, whatever is top of mind. We as a collective community globally go to Google to ask about it, to learn about it, to find out more information about it. And just the volume of searches that end up happening at a very specific period of time within three hours, you know, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours of something breaking, it's so much faster to your point than what a credible news outlet or a credible source could probably be creating to be answering these questions. So hearing you say that and kind of also knowing how human behavior is when it comes to just things that are happening in the world, it's reassuring to know that you guys have things in place to help with, help us with realizing what we should be looking at and maybe what we should be questioning if we come across it. Yeah, you're so right, Sharon, especially around when you think about what are those questions people are asking. And one of the fun, maybe interesting facts that I I recently learned was that in the last year, there's just been an incredible increase in the number of queries for the question, is it true that blank? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we know that, and from the survey that I mentioned earlier too, we know that people are coming to search across generations to verify information that they see elsewhere. So as people continue to consume information differently, whether it's from social platforms, on search, on other places, they come to search to ask those questions. And and that's why I think it's so important to us to have the tools available and these kinds of guidance features in place to help people make sense of the information they're seeing everywhere. Yeah. I mean, there's the long tail of like everything, right? So if we can't agree on like core facts, but obviously it is exacerbated by I don't know, a, a major public health issue that happened in the last couple of years or um, a major political event that feels like it's never ending in our country. Like, I mean, the responsibility absolutely is on all of us. And I want to talk more about that in a second. But like, what is the responsibility of the platforms? Like, obviously, it's in the vision. It's it's in the roadmap. But like, there's a huge responsibility to kind of what Sharon said. We all go and ask these questions. We're all going to effectively three to four sources of truth to, to get our answer. And it's not being always surfaced the right way, or maybe it's on us. We just kind of see what we want to see. And that's kind of where the divides come from. Like, I I don't know. I don't know what the question is exactly, but it's just like, um, it feels more important now. It feels like the stakes are higher because of shit that's going on right now. I I, I don't know. Like, how, how do you guys think about like the responsibility of the moment? I think when we think about the responsibility aspect, I always come back to Google's mission, that it is Google's mission to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible to people. Mm-hmm. And if our goal is to give people universal access to helpful information, then a key part of achieving that mission is making sure that people have 
information that's both relevant, but but also reliable yeah. and giving them the context that they need to evaluate that information in an ever-changing and often overwhelming, to your point, landscape. And so, you know, when it comes to information quality in search, I think we have a responsibility to make sure that we have even stronger quality protections in place for critical topics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, for example, when you search for something like COVID vaccines are dangerous mm-hmm. without quotes, mm-hmm. you don't simply get results that exactly match those words or that claim, mm-hmm. but that our systems are designed so that the top results are likely to be from high quality sources about these topics. Mm-hmm. And I think just because of who we are in this room, as an Asian American woman, one of the beauties of that is that we occupy a lot of different spaces and and have a bunch of breadth of different identities that make up who we are. And that also means being able to kind of understand why people might question information that's available to them. There's a lot of different perspectives and on different stories. We've all been in that place, I think, where we hear about a historical event from one perspective that's completely different from the perspective of the winners, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so that's why for me, this work is so important. And it's it's amazing for me to get to bring that part of my identity to the work I do at Google and, and how we think about tackling these hard problems. That's to me why that second prong of, of making sure people have the tools to be able to evaluate information for themselves is I think a really critical part of our responsibility to make sure that the the information people are getting is information that they feel they can trust. Well, on the the flip of it, right? Because the trust is, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I feel like the trust has always been in a system, be it government, be it, you know, um, Walter Cronkite, be it Google, right? Like it's religious incidents. You can just like name off all the systems that we have chosen historically to place our trust in. But it's almost like this paradigm shift specifically to the work and the mission that you have been thinking about in terms of information literacy is like, yes, but the systems aren't perfect. So we we need to be better now that the systems are more complex and more infinite, right? So it's like, how should we as individuals, right? Like, how should we think about being not just more information literate, but like, I like to think I'm a pretty good searcher on Google, right? But like, I don't know, maybe I'm not. Like, what are the... How sh- you said something earlier, like, did you search for it in quotes or not? Like, are, are there tips and tricks that we need to be thinking about? Um, not just for like when we go to look for information, but when we assess the information in front of us, when we choose the sources that we go get it from, you know, how do you think about it? What, 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 what tips are you giving your sister or your mom? Or your and grandma? how to maybe phrase some of the questions, because it didn't even occur to me until you just said what you said earlier, Nidhi, about the way that the search term is phrased would generate a certain type of result, right? The algorithm would find more credible resources for the way that someone might search for one thing versus if they were asking a general question about it. I think what you asked, Sharon, gets at a concept of information literacy, which is search literacy. And that's being able to know how to ask the questions that you want answers to from search. And and part of that is, yeah, you know, asking questions that are general and not leading and being able to have the awareness that what you've gone to look for might have an impact on the results that you're seeing. And that applies broadly across the internet. You know, having the awareness of why you're seeing a certain result on a feed that you're looking at or um, a place that you went for information 
and being able to kind of ask, you know, what's the perspective of this information I'm seeing? What what information might I not be getting? And so in terms of tips and tricks, we have a really cool feature on search that has three dots next to every search result called about this result. And you can click that to get a sense for why you might be seeing a certain result, the search terms that you put in that were relevant for that result coming up for you. And you can also see more information about the source. So you can see, you can click to get information about how Wikipedia might describe them, how they might describe themselves, how others have described them on the web, as well as getting additional context about a particular topic. So you can see top news coverage about that topic or what a range of sources might have to say about that particular topic. And and these are all based on what external information literacy experts recommend as best practices. So our goal is kind of to try to make it easy for you to, to do those practices without having to type in like 17 different Google searches every time you look yeah. at a piece of information. What's the mind shift have to be though? I mean, I hate to invoke like the stereotype of all of our parents, you know, like the email forwards and the things, but like, what's, I can't just tell my mom, Hey, don't do that. Or, Hey, go, you know, fact check it. But like, what are like the behavior changes that you think we all need to kind of take upon ourselves as as we look at stuff? I love that you gave that example. I have the same experience, you know, (laughs) here all of us do in these family (laughs) chats where you have a, a, my mama, for example, my grandma will send a chain letter that she got from a friend who forwarded from a friend. And it's really hard to relearn that this information that looks really official that someone you love sent you might not be true. I think that's the biggest shift of just you know, understanding how easy it is for information to be created today. In fact, how much money there is actually in in deceptive information. If for me, it's it's a bit of a shift of from feeling kind of negatively like, oh, I have to check all the information I ever look at mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. a shift of feeling kind of empowered to like investigate or be curious about the information that you're you're consuming and receiving, which I think makes the behaviors feel a bit different. And I think the second part of it is not feeling like you have to do that all the time. You know, if you get a piece of information about a new TV show, you don't have to verify that information or go down a rabbit hole of seeing who, (laughs) why did this person think that is the TV show really good? Shifting your behavior to kind of have an awareness of when information has an impact on you and the people you love, when it's motivating for you to go, you know, consider, is there something I don't know about this topic? Should I? double check where this came from before I I take an action or I I share it with a family family member. You know what my biggest fear point is on all of this is not the obvious things, right? Of what this is doing to our society, but like, am I going to be the one like forwarding these emails to my daughter? <laughs> like, it's like, that's literally why I want to maintain the curiosity because it's like, I don't, I, I'll just say it. I, I get it. I get it as like a practitioner in the, in the space and marketing and media and ad tech, but like I get TikTok. But at the same time, it's like, man. And I'm like, oh, and then my wife's like, aha, it's happening now. Like, you know, <laughs> you're going to be forwarding emails in a few more years. You know, I, I have to say, Raman, you're not alone. The survey that I mentioned we did with 8,500 respondents across the United States, Brazil, the UK, Germany, Nigeria, yeah. India, Japan, of people said that they see false and misleading information at least weekly, and relatively few of those people felt confident in identifying the misinformation. Huh. Hmm. 
So you're you're really not alone. And to speak to your your kids, you know, more than half of our Gen Z respondents were worried about their friends and family being exposed to misinformation. So wow. you're certainly not alone, but I think it's it's awesome that you want to maintain that curiosity because I think that that's really, that's kind of how I like to think of the reframe of it is an act of love to consider the information that you're consuming before you share it with people that, yeah. that you love. Yeah. What do you love most about your job and about doing this work? For me, this brings me back a little bit to the little nitty that wanted to be a librarian. I, I feel really strongly that education is really the most powerful tool to help remove barriers between people and their, and their potential. And in today's world, information is our education. And so for me, what, what makes me so excited about the work that we do and, and make me really love coming to work every day and working on this problem is that we really have an ability to create tools that provide agency and empower people, you know, millions and millions of people who are you coming to Google search every day to verify the things that they're seeing and, and to make sense of their world. And so for me, that's incredibly motivating. And I, I think the secondary part of that is that for me, what's core to me is really that I feel strongly about understanding the perspectives of people around the world and how how people are learning and 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 searching very differently. And I think what I love about working with my colleagues at, at Google is just that people are really open to and, and bring to the table such different perspectives from around the globe that help us to think about solutions to these problems in, in very diverse ways. And so I feel like I'm just constantly learning different things and, and challenging a lot of my assumptions about um, how people make sense of information that, that feels really fulfilling every day. Yeah, I can hear it the way that you talk about it. The passion is, is definitely in your voice. And it reminds me, it brings me back to Little Nitty with the, with the scanner <laughs> and the library books. And if we were to go back to that point in time, what is a piece of advice you'd give to her? When I think about Little Nibby, I think about the fact that there's so many things about my culture and the way that I was raised that feel like they make me really different, but are actually strengths. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about the way that as an Asian American woman, you're raised to be and how those are actually well, they might not seem that way from the start, are really strengths in, in the way that you should think about problems and bring in very different perspectives to address hard problems in the world. Um, and that so many of those questions will be, will be really relevant in the future. I wish that I could give my, my little self some advice that the, the things that light you up are, are really important to pay attention to and are worth worth pursuing and and defining your self-worth in. Yeah, I love that idea of just like staying curious, you know? And I feel I feel like that's been kind of like a through line. Like in I think to to be information literate, you you can't lose that curiosity. I think we like to tend to settle on what's easiest. Nithi, I feel like I could talk to you for a lot longer and I hope we can keep this conversation up and kind of see some of the work you're doing because it, it's clearly coming to life and, you know, literally the searches we're doing every day. But I don't know, Sharon. Uh, do you think Nidhi is ready for a speed round? I fully think that Nidhi is ready for a speed round. Do you feel ready for a speed round, Nidhi? 
I will try my best. <laughs> that's that's the right answer. That is a great answer. All these guests that are so cocky and say, I'm totally, they're never ready. <laughs> no one is ever ready for speech. <laughs> Uh, so, Nidhi, what is something about you that no one expects? This one's hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's the irony of speed round. It's definitely not speedy. <laughs> um, we can go at this one. What's the icebreaker at the at the yeah. front of an all hands? <laughs> Honestly, my icebreaker or my like two truths and a lie is that I'm a twin. What? Yeah. That always surprises people, but I don't know how you would expect someone to be a twin. That's pretty cool. Well, maybe one one fun fact is that I love the feeling of free fall. So I really love to chase experiences like cliff diving or I really, really like bungee jumping to the point where I once jumped off a bridge in the dark from a random guy who had jumper cables in his van. What? <laughs> You're a daredevil. There are so many. Th- that's the opening of any horror movie right there. Like, <laughs> Speaking of movies, what is a book, movie, or a television show with characters that you relate to? Point break. No. <laughs> I feel like the sad answer to this is that I'm not sure I can actually think of one because... I grew up so often feeling like there weren't examples of people that I could identify with. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. I think if I take inspiration from Little Nitty, I was really, really into Kim Possible. Nice. Of all of all the other things <laughs> Little Nitty could have been reading, why Kim Possible? <laughs> For me, that was just so cool to see a female character who was like a total badass. She wasn't bad. You know, she wasn't the villain for being a badass. Nice. What's your favorite mom dish? I love that question. For me, it's kitcheny. Ramen, I don't know if you're familiar with Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's- How's mom make it? How's mom make it? Over, t- tell people what kitcheny is, and then how does mom make it? Kitcheny is this delicious, what I think, the only thing I can equate it to is risotto, except that there's no cheese in it. And it's made of lentils and rice and a ton of ghee and a lot of really good spices. and. It is this warming, delicious risotto-like dish that they actually feed to babies and sick people because it's so easy to digest. And so I think there's an element of like both it feeling like home-cooked food and it actually like based on Ayurveda really has a, a healing benefit to it that just always makes you feel better. I tried making kitchery once and I botched it. Oh, no. Mine was no good. I probably didn't have the right spices, but it was too bland. Like I've had really good kitchery and I probably, you know, it tasted like the the Chinese version of that is called juk. So it's like a rice, it's like a soupy rice porridge. It turned out to be more like that than anything. That That is like such a disservice to kitchery to I know. like compare it to juk. I, I, <laughs> no, but I guess what I'm saying is my version was more like juk, which is not kitchery. <laughs> Baron, I will send you my family's recipe. That would be perfect. I would love to try it. And and I'll uh, I'll send you a picture back of, of the final product. <laughs> no, I we want a picture of your the expression on your son's face. On my kids' faces. All right. That's the <laughs> ultimate test. Uh my, my wife is also Chinese American. Um, and she's also like an R and D scientist. So she is very exacting in the kitchen. And yeah. like with Indian food, you can't be exacting. You just need to like heap in and instinct stuff, I found. Yeah. And so every time 
I know how to cook a few Indian dishes and I'm learning a few, you know, Chinese and South Asian dishes uh, beyond the subcontinent. And, but every time she tries to cook Indian food, she doesn't like overdo it like you're supposed to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> With the stuff. And it's, it, it, it kind of is that juke like experience sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Yes. Oh, the, that's always the experience, right? When you ask for an Indian recipe and it's like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah. We don't know which yeah. one is more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the fun of it. What's your least favorite food? What is something you will just not eat no matter what? You know, I would have said meat, but just a couple months ago, I started eating meat for the first time. And you've liked it? I have, actually. I needed to for health reasons, and it really has felt really good in my body. But I think actually maybe octopus, because I think I just really like octopi. Okay. Yeah. And I don't want to eat them. <laughs> but is is there like a veto dish that like just kind of shows up like your whole life beyond, beyond me like you know like it, just something like uh, i'll give you an example like cantaloupe is the dumbest fruit for me like, I, like i'm sorry like i don't i think everyone else in the world is wrong because cantaloupe come on okay i have to this is not important for this podcast but i have to tell you that i was always that person Roman, and i recently met someone at the farmer's market who told me that I would be a melon girl if I bought a melon from her stand because people put melons in the grocery stores before they're ripe. Right. And she changed my life. Hmm. I am now a melon girl. So you're saying I haven't had the right cantaloupe? Yes. Okay. You just got, you've got to find the right cantaloupe, Roman. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just wrong. I, I don't know. I just, there's something... Honeydew's even worse. Like, I just... Uh, Makes no sense to me. And like, I've lived in South, I've, I've had it off the tree. I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you'll have, you'll have to, you'll have to tell me about which farmer's market. So next time. Deal. Maybe, maybe I'm just getting it from the wrong places. <laughs> Deal. Who's someone out there that you would want to have a conversation with on a podcast? I actually think I'd be really interested in I listened to some of the podcasts earlier and I am so sorry. <laughs> no, I loved it. I was hooked. <laughs> I there were so many common themes. Like for me, it was almost like a, a therapy session of like hearing other people say and talk about experiences that I've experienced myself. And it made me so curious what it would be like to interview one of our parents. Yeah. In the same way of just you know, these are things that they've experienced from a different perspective, but at least I think for my parents, without the awareness and the vocabulary to recognize mm -hmm. some of these experiences, and I would be so curious what that would be like with the great questions that you both ask. I, um, one, will totally take the compliment. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> uh, two, yeah, I mean, Sharon and I talk about this a lot offline. Like, I feel like the amount of free therapy we get out of this podcast. <laughs> and when when we go on, like, hiatuses because we're busy with, like, work and life, like, and we come back to it, we're like, oh, man, it's like a, these conversations are like a warm, comfortable friend. And, and then the last thing I'd say is, yeah, I do think... there's. I'm obsessed with, like, oral histories and documentary. Not in the sense, like, I'm watching them all the time but it's um especially with our parents right like 
I think you can get so much more out of a conversation if you can find the moment and the space to do it than you can just asking them the question, if that makes sense. Like my dad's going to give me like the rehearsed answer about that time on the bus in India, but like to to really have the space to go into like, wait, why were you on a bus? Why weren't you riding your bike that day or whatever? And like the things that just come out and my sister listens to this podcast and I think she's going to come on at some point to correct all the things that I've gotten wrong about (laughs) our experience growing up. But, but like just... Yeah, I, I think the conversation brings to life. Like, I can't encourage friends enough. Like, you should just like light up a Zoom with your folks and go full screen, turn self view off, and just hit record. And then just like you know, transcribe the conversation, export it to a Word doc, print it, and put it on your shelf. Like, that's. I wish my parents would do more of that with me versus conversations with their kids on FaceTime or <laughs> Google Duo or something. That's so powerful. It makes me um. I mean, this is now we're getting a little bit off topic, but the history of this podcast is because Raman was doing a project like that. Was it for your 40th or your 35th? I'm so young. I, He's I so young. It's 21st. Was we're going to say it's his 21st yeah, birthday. Yeah. It was a milestone <laughs> birthday and he was interviewing his friends and he had chosen. So it was 35. I think it was 35 of his friends. It was 40. It was, some, it was totally, it was totally 40. It was 40. <laughs> so 40 of his friends for his 40th birthday and literally just sitting down and having conversations like this. And then he recorded it all so that he could have it as a keepsake. So there, I've just revealed, I've just revealed a super secret thing about you. <laughs> That, that there's a recorded co- – well, and well, the funny thing is like those recordings, uh, it's like the only people who get a copy of it is like Sharon was one of those people. And that's kind of how we – we have this like really deeper conversation because we've been kind of like good but not that often hanging out friends prior, right? Yeah. The, the depth of the conversation, you know, just kind of led to, oh, wow. Like what if we went and had these right. like, kind of things with with other people? Yeah. Totally. And it was because he was asking me questions like, well, what was your first impression of me? And like, Nidia, like, how weird is that, right? Because it's like, what? Because my first impression of him was like 20 years prior to this conversation. So it actually, it was so interesting to have the space to reflect upon our whole relationship from that moment on. And even though our relationship wasn't one that was super close or that, you know, we were interacting often because we met as work friends, basically, oh. it was just so insightful that I had a moment to think like, what did I think of this guy? You know, like, and how did our relationship then change over the years? It was, it was really powerful. So podcasts or not, I think sitting down with mom and dad is probably a great exercise. And then your librarian self can categorize that and catalog it and put it wherever <laughs> it needs to be. <laughs> like, and then, and then ask your sister to have the exact same conversation and mom right. and dad are going to tell them completely different completely different stories. <laughs> completely different. It's so true. Yeah. That's such a great idea. (laughs) Okay. Last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? To me, it means embracing the values and strengths and, and wisdom, really, of my own culture that makes me a minority, while not feeling encumbered by false narratives, restrictive beliefs, or or stereotypical expectations, you know, whether they're internal or external that hold us back. So I think, I think the role of a modern minority is in my eyes to continuously redefine and expand what it means to be that specific type of modern minority. That's great. I love that. Well, Nidhi, uh, thank you so much for just, not just spending the time to kind of share your own experience, but, and your views on the work that you're doing, but the work itself. Cause I love that kind of where the, 
the curiosity for the work and, and even rooted in education kind of came from, but the fact that it's being applied to kind of one of those trusted sources. Like I, I love that there are people like you doing the work that you're doing inside of these companies that, that just, that we touch every single day. So um, thanks for doing the work and thanks for continuing to do the work. And we can't wait to see more of these changes in, in how we search and how we, how we digest information. And I can't wait to see your mom's kitchery, kitchery recipe. <laughs> I can't wait to send it to you. And thank you so much for the kind words and, and also for having me. This was a really, really enjoyable conversation. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.